Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. The women feared God. They did not fear Pharaoh. They might have feared him and like this, scared for their lives, but they feared an awe and respect and trust in the power of God even more. And so they risked their lives for their community and protected the families that were growing in Egypt. And so now we get to chapter 2. Verse 1, and with this edict fresh in our minds that when he realized that the midwives were not helping the population, Pharaoh said, okay, every Egyptian, this is your job now. Everybody, if you see a baby and he's Hebrew and male, just take him to the Nile and drown him. Like that was the edict. So that is the feeling, that is the setting that we are stepping into today. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, and she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Okay, so with this thought in mind, we see that a baby can only be hidden for so long because they're on the lookout. There's probably Egyptian guards or they're supposed to probably go around. We can imagine the neighborhoods just kind of keeping watch. Like how else are they going to figure out if the population is growing or not? So they're probably on alert for some babies. Now, the thing that's very chilling to me is that it kind of really dawned on me this week that perhaps mom thought that a safe place in the Nile would be because, well, there's some baby's cries going on in the Nile because there's some bad things happening. So if you heard a baby cry near the Nile, maybe that was kind of becoming more commonplace, which is scary. But we learn their names later. But Moses' parents were Amram and Jochebed, his mother, and Miriam, his sister. We don't see their names here. We learn them later, so we'll talk about them that way now. Now, big sister Miriam is still a kid herself. The original language described her as this kid. And you can imagine, as I'm sure you have seen, or maybe you have been, a big brother, big sister, taking care of a younger sibling. This was big responsibility. This was a big risk because Moses wasn't supposed to be alive. And so by big sister Miriam watching out for him, like she's putting herself at risk too. She's doing something huge for the family. Now Moses himself likely penned the book of Exodus, wrote it down. And so you can imagine he's sharing some details about his own life. And he doesn't recall babyhood, so stories that he learned about how his life was protected. And I love some of this language here that's going to give us clues now for who Moses will become. 
So can you imagine him thinking back on his life and reflecting and putting the pieces together that God had been providing this whole time? Here's three details I want to point out. First, it says the tribe of Levi. Later in the Torah, we will read that the tribe of Levi becomes called to be the priests. These are the people that serve in the temple, that are representatives on earth between God, Yahweh, the Lord God, and humans. And so when we see Moses, he's going to be this first mouthpiece connecting the people between God speaking and him speaking to the people, and he's in this tribe. So he's this first step here. Not only that, we heard about this basket that mom weaves together, uses tar and pitch. And the only other time this word is used in scripture is Noah's ark. So she made him a little mini ark, less animals, a little smaller. But that same idea, she's covering him, she's protecting him, built in a similar way as a little ark floating down the water. And I can imagine Moses thinking about the way God had brought people through a storm before, and he's ready to bring his people through another. And finally, we talked about her putting him in the reeds, because those would have been like a strong place so that this little ark is not going to float away. Wants to keep track. It's still a river. It's active. It's moving. So if he's in the reeds, you know, it's kind of, kind of gripped there. But reeds, we know it as the Red Sea, but it was the sea of reeds that later Moses will bring the people through, will head out of Egypt through the sea of reeds. And here we have a foreshadowing of some reeds protecting Moses. Let's continue in verse 5 and find out what happens next. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw a basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, this is Miriam, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, Pharaoh's daughter answered. So the girl went, got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I'll pay you. So the woman... Jochebed, took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So Pharaoh is giving the orders, and his daughter is the one who she's heard these orders. And if she saw a baby while she's taking a bath, she's supposed to do one thing. And she doesn't. Her heart was moved. And per her father's orders, she was supposed to destroy, and she instead saw hope and life. And so then Miriam's at the ready. She notices something different. This woman is reacting differently to this baby, my brother. And so she's like, hey, I know somebody who'd be really great at taking care of him for you. So then mom and baby got to spend time together a little longer, a year, maybe longer, then Pharaoh's daughter took Moses into the palace as her son. And I don't know, growing up, that's just what you heard. That's the story. But we know there's more to the story. That seems great, and he's saved, and he's raised in a place that to take care of him. 
But I know it's not lost on us here. The pain that happened in that separation that Jochebed had to choose death or someone else raising her son. And I know that here in this church, so many of us have been a piece of the foster care system here in our city, have been a piece of rescuing, but you know that it's not all sunshine. And that I've had some conversations with you about the joy it is to take care and to love on a little one in your home, but also the pain you know it is to make a sacrifice out of love. And that the parents choosing this or knowing it's been chosen, knowing that their home is not a place where this child might be as safe. And there's some heartache here. So I want us to sit in this moment and recognize Jochebed and Amram as parents and the heartache and the love that they chose here. So we're getting ready to read the next verse, and it jumps ahead in time. And that's a big gap. And in the same way that I look at the life of Jesus and think, what in the world happened to his teenage years? I really want to know this about Moses. Because we're going to jump and he's an adult. And I've got some major questions here. Like, what was it like to grow up in the palace? Like, the biggest question for me is, did Moses know about his heritage? I mean, we can read about the kind of education he probably got in Egypt. They focused on, you know, they began at age four or five in the way kids do now. They went until they were 16 or 17. They were taught um, reading and writing and arithmetic, but writing was very, very much emphasized during that day. Penmanship, cultivation of style. They were very disciplined, it says, in the history of Egyptian education. Corporal punishment was not out of the question. So Moses was taught to be very correct. He was taught to be very smart. But did he look around and feel like an outsider? Did he physically look different than his classmates? Did he always know who his birth mom and dad were? Did he get to have any conversation with them? Was he treated differently in the halls of the palace by certain people. How did all of this make Moses feel? We don't know. But I chatted with a friend this week because I wanted to know how did this feel? She was adopted and I just asked like, how do you process this as an adult? Like, what are you still thinking? And she said over the years, she's met a number of people also adopted. And she's like, my situation's very different from a lot of people. She said, I, was a, I wasn't as young as some people who were adopted. She's like, I had some different circumstances. But every person I've met and talked to as an adult had to, at some point in their lives, go through and ask this similar question. Why? Why didn't my parents keep me? What does this say about my value? What does this say about me as a person? She says, you look around and you compare other people's settings and at some point, you just check in with yourself and you feel, am I worthy? And she's like, it's not that my adoptive parents weren't amazing, but she's like, you just have to go through that. And she sees 
friends who have little kids, and she's able to kind of share, like, some point, they're going to go through this. Just be aware. It's just a question to ask yourself. So by her story, this is now informing me about Moses, that at some point, I imagine him questioning a lot of things. And not only does he have family scenarios of birth parents and adoptive parents, but he also has two different cultures here. He has where he was born and where he was raised. And not only that, but where he was raised is oppressing the people from where he came. So thinking about this outsider status, this internal crisis he's having to go through, with this perspective, let's keep reading verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. First, let's consider a positive. He's recognizing the harm, the suffering, the oppression. He's recognizing it but he doesn't know how to deal with it. The negative, violence, his violence is not justified here. We don't see it honored, and we see him actually in the next verse run. He knows something was not right in the way he acted. He could see that was step one, but he did not respond. And so the way this is described as looking this way and that, and he's looking out, who's watching, it's similar wording that he's going to have when they walk through that sea of reeds, when the water is on either side, and he looks this way and that and heads through dry land. But that was with God's guidance, and Moses didn't stop to seek God in this moment. He didn't look for a provision or a way out or asking how to deal with this oppression. He just saw it and reacted. And so... I just want to also bring up what's heavy in our hearts as we read the news and we see violence. And just as I chose perhaps one illustration from the news this week, then another happened, and then another. And this violence is, we look at Moses as a hero, but he made this choice in his life, and it's hard. And to know that God had to work on his heart and redeem him from this. This pain, violence, and victims, and we, we have anger. We have confusion when the people are doing this to their own community. And so then I think of Moses looking in the eye of this Hebrew man who said, are you going to try to kill me too? And he looks just like him. That was a wake-up call for Moses. At least I'm hoping we do see we do see him change and I'm sure that that moment of looking face to face and recognizing that he was found out and that he was out of line and many years later he will take the same 
passion against suffering, and he will learn to put his trust in God's provision and way out. But for now, he runs. Verse 15 says, When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water to fill the troughs for their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Let's pause before moving on. Is that first we see he's still seeing injustice, right? But now he's responding better. So already he's gone from violently reacting to now he's like sending the shepherds away and then serving the people who were harmed, right? So he's already taking that step of what does it mean to approach injustice? It's not just about stopping one thing. It's about bringing redemption, healing, serving others. So he's stepping in and doing this. Keep reading. When the girls return to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. So Moses agreed to stay, and the man gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Let's meet these Midianites that Moses went and hang out with. So first on the map, we're going to look at the journey. This is how far away Moses decided to run. Like he was getting way, way out of Pharaoh's eyesight. So if you can see where he lands, we're going to flip to the next map and see it on a modern day map. It's part of Saudi Arabia, part of the country of Jordan. That's where the region of the Midianites were. So he's somewhere in that region. So the Midianites were actually a group of a bunch of different nomadic tribes. And some people kind of folded their way into the Midianites over the years. There was one group called the Kenites, and that's who Ruel, the father-in-law here, that's his clan. And later we find out that they're the ones that end up having the most loyalty to Israel, whereas the Midianites as a whole are described later as enemies. So here we've got this group of people, and the Midianites are actually descendants from Abraham. So we have the Israelites going through the line of, of Abraham's son Isaac. But Abraham had another wife and some concubines later in life, and the Midianites came from those births. So here we have this ancient connection that Moses finds on the run. But we bring in, it's another culture. He's now in another strange land. And some historians estimate that Moses was maybe 40 years old at this point when he fled, and he spent another 40 years here with the Midianites. And can you imagine him going through this process? Now he's got a whole new life. He lived in a palace before, he was well-educated, and now he's a shepherd. He grew up learning Egyptian and knowing he was Hebrew, and now there's a Midianite culture to deal with. So we've got all of these pieces of his life, and you can see it still on his mind because look at what he names his son. I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. That's what he named his kid. I don't know how Gershon felt about that. But Moses is expressing that he still feels like an outsider. 
I've recently spoken to two different women in the same week who had lived a life of like, grew up in one culture, moved to another, headed to a third culture. And one of them had written her memoir, and I want to share a bit. Farifta Rob was an Iranian by birth, but her dad worked for the World Health Organization, so she was actually educated in Geneva, Switzerland. And she said because of her skin tone, she was an outsider. But she learned different language and tried, she said language was always her way to kind of piece back into the culture. Then, when she was a teenager, they moved back to Iran. Iran, that's the best way to say it, sorry. Iran. But there, people looked at her funny, like, well, you are very European. So now she didn't fit in with the people who looked like her because she didn't live the traditional ways that they lived. Later, Farifta decided she, didn't, she felt like such an outsider, so she headed to England. She got the opportunity to go to college. And she said again, she relied on her language skills. She says, that takes you a long way culturally, so I could pretend quite well. So there she's in that third culture in England. And eventually, she spends time in both England and Iran, and through it all, she met God along her journey. And she said that when she felt like an outsider, his provision kept giving her strength. She ended up marrying a man from Scotland, and she says this, By now, I've lived in Scotland for almost half my life, yet when people ask me where I'm from, I still find it impossible to give a concise answer. And I always begin first by taking a deep breath. I'm sure that Moses felt the same way. Where are you from? Well, do you have a minute? But just as Farifta, she had to figure out a way through feeling like an outsider in every moment. And so we have this hope that Moses is figuring out a way. And we'll continue his story next week. But before we end chapter 2, we get to look back at the Hebrew people, those that he's left behind, and check in on them. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So the Pharaoh, who knew of Moses' crime, is now out of the picture. So as we as readers can read that as open door for Moses to return. But what we want to focus on in this moment is, is God. God's doing some action here. It says he heard, he remembered. Now, when I read these, sometimes it, in a very human way, you're like, well, if you heard something, then were you ignoring it before or you remembered? Did that mean you forgot? But I don't know. If Moses is writing it down and feeling like he's using very human terms that we hear and we remember, but I can't. When I read all of Scripture, I can't imagine that God has ever forgotten, that he's ever not been very close, that he's never not seen every day and had heartache. So when I read this, I feel like this is, this is Moses. Maybe he's processing all these questions he had. Besides questions about his own identity, maybe he's asking, why, why so long? Why so long before you've responded, God? And I think we all have those questions. 
Might as well admit it. We have questions. And, and maybe Moses is saying that he, he trusts, despite his questions, that God did hear, that God did remember. I was listening to a podcast, and Esau McCulley the other day was just saying, like, sometimes trust can be used as a way of turning off the brain. But he said, I trust with a critical analysis of things, and I yet, I trust this God. And he just called upon churches to say, don't hide from the fact that we have questions and that we don't understand this mysterious God that we are asked to be in a relationship with. But we have to work a way forward to live and still try to believe. And so we're not turning off our questions, but we're trying to step forward and to say, who is this God? This God has been providing This God provides chance after chance to people like Moses who needed a new start to his story. He provides new pathways out. He provides comfort. He provides small redemptions in our day. And he had a big picture plan of a redemption for for Egypt, for Israel in Egypt, and a redemption for all of us through Jesus. In the meantime, as I was reading this week, I was remembering that Steve read us some scripture from Isaiah two weeks ago, Isaiah 19, where it said, the Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. If you recall us dwelling on that, he says they will turn to the Lord. He will respond to their pleas and heal them. And that's talking about Egypt because they were made in God's image too. And though we question and wonder about the timing God's always giving chances to people. Maybe the waiting is a bit of grace for Egypt. See if they would figure it out on their own before God came in with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. I noted that each week we're going to look in Exodus and we're going to talk about Yahweh, the Lord God, and we'll talk about his name next week. But we'll look at an aspect of what it reveals about God in this chapter. And we're also going to look at Jesus because that's our faith. We see that Jesus was God living on earth. And how did he connect to Exodus? How did he live and emulate? And how was he the same God yesterday and today? Old Testament, new. Yahweh reveals that he is provider. God provided wisdom to Jochebed so she knew how to hide Moses. God provided strength to Miriam and discernment to notice hope and a person with compassion. God provided Moses an awareness of injustice happening around him. And he provided a space for Moses to go heal, have a family, and mature before he called him back into action. Jesus also relates, I feel like in the same way we imagined what Moses would have gone through, Jesus was from God from heaven, living on earth. Sure, he felt like a little bit of an outsider at times. He had an earthly family and a heavenly father. He had a mission that people didn't understand. So I'm sure he felt outside of the norm in his culture. He witnessed oppression but he trusted in God's plan for it. He gives up his life rather than taking life. 
so we can see where God, this beautiful story that people call upon, even today, of exodus and redemption physically, and God brought it around through Jesus to say, and also, I'm ready to redeem you spiritually. And God's redemption plan had always involved these pieces. So now we get to us today. And maybe we relate. Maybe we feel in some way like an outsider. Maybe it's how we grew up or who raised us or who wasn't there, who was there. Maybe it's just the way people lived in your community and you just felt a little different. Maybe you moved from another place and it never felt quite home. Maybe you have regrets in the way you handled those outsider feelings. There might be things that we've done and said, surely, when we were in pain, when we were concerned about others that didn't quite land. And I know that today just talking about it doesn't take any of that away. But just to speak it and to say, we're not alone. If we feel an outsider, other people have felt this way. To give us hope. And certainly, the fact that God would come as Jesus and want to place himself in that position, to connect to us, to understand how we feel in our condition, it gives us hope that when we pray, we're not just praying to a provider, but also to an outsider. That when we pray, it's that, that power of God who sent Moses, who's creating, who, who sees a pain and oppression, who's bringing up leaders. And also we're praying to God as Jesus, who washed feet, who allowed people to harm him for our sake. When Jesus felt alone, he called out to Yahweh, this peace of God, as Father. And he gave us permission to use the same language. And maybe like Moses Maybe it's hard to understand what father, what that role is. For some of us, it can be a great picture. Like, I can just really relate to God as father. Some of us, it's harder. God is the thing that we want, the ideal that we don't know. But either way, we're, we're given permission to relate to God in that way. And from all of this, from all these examples, I just... I see that even outsiders belong with a provider. That's our, our little rhyming point for the end. But truly, to know that we're seen, that God hears and God remembers. God hears our cries when we're in pain. And he remembers that he promises to be with us. That each time we call out, we're heard, we're remembered, we're known. But being Belonging to something requires some action on our part. And we're going to read next week, Moses is going to be called to some action. We saw Jesus was called to action, that we're supposed to care not about our own self-interest, but about the community. And we actively belong to one another. That when we belong to God, it does mean that we step toward, that we do things, that we live it out and not just in word only because we all know what it's like when people don't live out what they believe. And we get to do that together. 
So for now, we rest in this knowledge and we pray for God's strength today that we're ready to do what he's going to ask for us tomorrow. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that you, you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we thank you for reminders of the way that you hear and you remember, and not in a human way, but in a, in a present way. Thank you that we can call on you as Father, as Provider. Thank you for noticing when we feel alone, when we feel outside, but that you care about us being part of a community, of us living out your redemption plan. We give our lives to you and we say, give us strength for what's next. We lift up you in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 1030 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.